0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged and encouraged and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This morning we're beginning the epiphany season, six-week season this year to reflect on the ways Christ has been revealed. Epiphany means manifestation, the way Christ has been manifest to us as the light. Of the world. We always begin with the baptism of Jesus in Mark one, nine through eleven, or one of the other gospels. This text is just like a it's like a rosebud, like a small, dense little thing that eventually blossoms into a very large and and beautiful flower. My hope this morning is to take this dense little rosebud of a text and help us just to unfurl it and to look at it in all of its textured and, and and layered and beautiful biblical theological significance. And then we're going to have some moments at the end to have some unique application time. We're going to offer anointing, and you'll see why throughout the sermon. Father, I pray that you would open, open our hearts, um, open our minds to hear from you, to be renewed by your Spirit. We are very aware of our need to be renewed by you. So we pray that you would renew us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to imagine a scene in a movie that opens with a very close-up shot and then slowly expands to add context to the scene, and then you understand it. So, for example, my favorite movie, which you might be shocked to know, is Return of the King. And it begins with a close-up, anyone, of a? Close. A worm. Who got that? Kindis? Nice. Miley, well done. Close-up of a worm, and then slowly it fades out a little bit, and you see the hook. And then you see Smeagol's face full on the frame, and then slowly the the camera pans out and then it cuts and you see these two hobbits fishing, and you begin to understand what's happening here. Ah, fishing, that's why we've got a worm, there's the hook, they're fishing now in the river. And then you see them discover the ring at the bottom of the sandy river, and then they fight over it and Smeagol strangles his brother and begins his descent from Smeagol, the forest loving creature, to Gollum, the cave dwelling beast. I want to say that Mark 1, 9 through 11 begins with a close-up shot of Jesus' baptism. Tight in the frame, but we have to zoom out a little bit to understand what's actually going on here in the sweeping biblical context, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. The illustration also works because what we're witnessing, well, in Smigel's story, we're witnessing the descent from, from man to beast, you know, the descent from life to death. And this really, this story is a an ascent from, from man to man plus, as we shall see, um, to being fully human, to being fully human. We are going to be enhanced as we receive what the Lord has for us this morning. We'll get there. Let's look at this through, through three movements. I want to look at who Jesus is, what his baptism tells us about who he is, and then what his baptism tells us about what he does, and then finally about what it means for us. So first, what does his baptism tell us about who he is? We see in this text, Mark 1, 9 through 11, two things that help us understand who he is. Tight in the frame is the voice and the dove. So the voice. This voice booms from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. An incredible economy of words because this is dense. God the Father here combines and quotes two scriptures. So we have God the Father quoting the written word using his audible word to the incarnate word. And he quotes Psalm 2:7, you are my beloved son. This psalm, in, in its context, is a, is a coronation psalm. It's a coronation formula for the messianic king of Israel who would rule all the nations with justice. And then the father quotes Isaiah 42-1, with you I am well pleased. This is an ordination formula, ordaining the suffering servant of Isaiah, this figure who would heal and forgive his people. So in these words, from God the Father, Jesus is publicly coronated as king and publicly ordained as the suffering servant from Isaiah. So we have this voice telling us who Jesus is, the servant and the king. And then we see the dove descending. And the dove tells us a great deal about the nature of his kingship. In verse 10, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This word, torn open. Mark's account alone uses it. The word is schizo, tear apart, as in schizophrenic, when a mind is torn apart. And this word would have sent Mark's early Old Testament-informed readers to Isaiah 64.1 and the great hope of God's coming kingdom. And there we read this prayer, Oh God, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens open and come down and make things right. And so what do we have here? The heavens are now torn open and the Spirit is coming down. As a dove upon the king. Now, why a dove? Our camera is zoomed way in, close-up shot on this gentle, pure, white dove, descending from the rent heavens, alighting on the messianic king. And then let's pan out. Let's pan way out, all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 2, second verse in the Bible, where we read that the earth was wild and waste, and darkness was over the face of the deep abyss. This is an ancient Near East way of describing the nothing, kind of the non reality that preceded creation and God's ordering of it. And then we read, the Spirit of God was fluttering over the face of the waters. Some of the rabbis add, like a dove. The Spirit is fluttering like the wings of a bird, poised to create, to bring chaos to order, to bring darkness to light. Then we keep zooming out. And this part of the story, most of you are familiar with Genesis 1 through 3, the story of God's good creation of men and women created to tend it and reign and rule and keep it as his image bearers and then all of it going horribly wrong and their misguided attempt to rule as gods themselves rather than to rule as God's children listening to him obeying him maybe you're not as familiar with Genesis 456 and 7 so here's a quick just like cut scene of Genesis 456 and 7 it's a vortex of sin murder and greed and violence destroying God's good creation and then along comes Noah. You know the story. God decides, I'm going to rinse the world clean of injustice, of violence, of death that's so strangled my world. So he preserves one family. He's going to start fresh with Noah, a new kind of Adam. So Noah builds this ark, and he sets safely sail over the waters of death and chaos. Now let's slow the cutscenes and let's pan back in on Genesis 8, verse 8. We read this. Then Noah sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. So first trip, dove goes out, comes back, nothing. Second trip, Noah waited seven more days and again sent the dove out from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Okay, second trip, comes back with an olive leaf. Third trip, so Noah waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, and this time the dove did not return to him. So for Noah, the dove is a herald. The waters of judgment and death have ended. New creation can now begin. But look closely. The first time the dove returns, empty-handed. The second time the dove returns with what? An olive tree. Olives, the source of you know, olive oil. This oil that's used in the ancient world for just about everything, but most notably for anointing kings and priests, and prophets. So then Noah waits seven more days to give the waters a little bit more time to recede, these waters of death to go down. And look at the third time, the dove never returns. And the question is, why? Well, I've always thought about it just practically, like, well, because he just found a nice tree to go live in somewhere. But I think spiritually we're to see something else going on. The dove didn't return because she found a safe and sunless dry land. She didn't return because she couldn't find anywhere to land. She needed to keep flying in her search. See, the waters of death did recede, but think about it. The cleansing was very short-lived because what happens in the very next chapter? Noah, this new Adam, the new man trusted with God's creation, is passed out drunk in the middle of another garden, the vineyard that he planted. He grows the wine. He gets drunk on it. His son comes into his tent, does a shameful thing. So we have Eden 2.0. We have a man and a garden and shame. There's nowhere for the dove to land. The earth is still full of sin. It's still full of violence. It's still full of corruption. The dove can't find any lands that is 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 fully cleansed, where there's no more injustice and no more murder and and no more violence and no more shame. So she flies and she flies and she flies through the centuries and she finally lands on the only safe and sinless place, the only holy land that she can find, the head of Jesus. Jesus is the holy land. Jesus is the tip of the mountain heralding the end of judgment and the end of death and of new creation and the waters of death and judgment receding, a new creation beginning. The Bible is so beautiful. I want to dwell a bit on the olive branch here because we read in Acts 10, John read for us this morning, Peter is actually preaching about Jesus' baptism and interpreting for us what's going on. And did you notice the word anointed? Here it is again. Peter says, at Jesus' baptism, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And then what did he do? Peter says, he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Why healing? Why deliverance? Because what I want to say is, Jesus didn't just come to pardon sinners. Many of us grew up thinking of the gospel as that I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, God forgives me, I get to go to heaven. But here we see God ushering in new creation. To be the better Adam, the king who would reign and rule with God, Jesus comes and does what the flood couldn't do. He begins ridding the world of evil and of death, of healing and delivering. The blind see, the lame walk, the prisoners are set free. All of this context redefines how we actually think of the gospel and what it is. The good news is not just that we are forgiven and get to go to heaven one day. It's that through King Jesus, God is in the, pres- the process of restoring and renewing Everything including you and I, but the whole of creation, all things. The dove of heaven has come to earth. So as in Eden, heaven and earth are once again kissing, you might say, joined together in Christ. And this video we're going to watch, three minutes long from the Bible Project, it's going to clarify how in his people, in us, he's also doing this very thing. So take a look. So that's the answer to our first question. Who is Jesus? His baptism tells us he's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed priest of priests and king of kings. It doesn't only tell us who he is, but a little bit about what he does. That's our second point. And we've already done the heavy lifting. Acts 10 tells us that Jesus' baptism, his anointing, is his anointing as the priest and the king and the prophet, the one that only, the other priests and the kings and the prophets only pointed to because the priests mediated, they were mediators, right, of God's holiness and his forgiveness and of his justice, and of his words. But Jesus is God's holiness. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself is the king who will bring justice. He is the word of God made flesh. And so he's bringing, this is is ultimately what I want to say, he is bringing heaven to earth. That's what he does. He doesn't come to pardon from afar our sins or just do something that allows him to forgive us. He actually is doing something now in us and through us in his world to make all things new. So his forgiveness, as you and I experience it, it reconciles us to ourselves, to one another, renews us. His kingly justice, as we follow him and care for the poor and the marginalized, ushers in justice for the least of these that sometimes the world forgets. His prophetic words, they bring conviction to us. They bring freedom and courage and cures as we listen to them. He's renewing all things. So I want to just quote Chrysostom, the fourth century doctor of the church who says in a paragraph what I've been trying to say in 20 minutes. He says this, Why a dove? Bearing an olive branch, the dove published to Noah the good tidings of peace, which was actually a type of things to come. Because after Noah, the condition of men got much worse. And we saw that with Noah and the in the garden. And we deserve therefore an even sorer punishment than Noah. But therefore the dove appears finally upon Jesus, not bearing an olive branch, but anointing for us the deliverer of all evil and pointing to our hope. And here's the key sentence. For not from out of an ark does this dove lead one man only, but the whole world she leads up into heaven at her appearing. And if I may be so bold as to edit Chrysostom, (laughs) I would put it this way. For not from out of an ark does she lead one man only, but the whole of heaven she leads to earth at her appearing. Because the end goal is not for this whole place to be done away with and for us to be up there. It's for up there, the heavens, and what's true up there to be made true here. We pray that every week. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's going to renew this earth. So what does Jesus do? He begins to fill the earth with the life of heaven. All right. This has all been very academic. We've been up in the biblical theological stratosphere. Let's bring this down to earth with our last point. What does this mean for for you and me? What does this mean for us? Did you hear the end of the video? I'm going to just quote it again. More than a name, Christ means a title. It means anointed one. Messiah in Hebrew, Mashiach, anointed ones. The ultimate priest, the cosmic king, God's heavenly life coming into our world in a new way. But then, after Jesus rose from the dead, what happens? He spread his anointing out into the whole world through his Holy Spirit. And now his followers, Christians, what does Christian mean? It means little Christ. What does that mean? Little anointed ones who share in his anointing. People marked by God's Spirit so that more and more of earth can be filled with the life of heaven. So, as we go into a new year, many of you made resolutions. This yearly tradition, doesn't it evidence to ourselves, doesn't it evidence a deep desire to be be better, to improve? How do we become the best version of ourselves? New diets, new routines, different habits. You know, one suggestion that is quite interesting is called transhumanism, which is really, well, I'll give you an example. The official mission of the transhumanist movement is, is very noble, actually. The website says, and I quote, to help people be better than well. And they call it Humanity Plus, just humanity with a plus sign. How do we get to Humanity Plus? How do we get to Humanity 2.0? Well, the transhumanists offer some ways. So, for example, Neil Harbison, so 41 year old transhumanist, best known for being the first person in the world to attach an antenna to his skull. It's, it's attached to his occipital bone. And this antenna sits in front of his forehead. You can look, look up his picture. It allows him to feel and hear colors and audible vibrations inside of his head that we can't see in the normal spectrum with a human eye. He has a couple other things. He has a Bluetooth tooth and he has a heat crown that tells him what time it is and other stuff. So nanotechnology, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, cryonics, maybe we can freeze ourselves and then thaw in a couple million years. Aspirational technologies like um, mind uploading, which is the desire to turn our minds into data and put it on a hard drive so we can upload it to a new body later on. These things are actually aspirational in the world and and being worked on. Now, there's something very noble about a lot of it. A lot of it has to do with medicine and, um, and science and technology that can be very good. I'm so thankful for the ibuprofen I took this week while I had a headache. I'm so thankful for hospitals and for those of you who are doctors and nurses, for those of you who work in tech, for the heart rate monitor on my watch. So I'm thankful for the ability to talk to my loved ones and my ears all the way across the world. It's crazy. And yet, here's the sobering moment. There are 20,000 people who have died from high-tech bombs and guns in Gaza these last months. And thousands and thousands of children. By some estimates, one child every 15 minutes. So as long as human depravity in the heart isn't dealt with, technology will be a mixed bag of innovation and devastation at best. Here is the problem. So how do we become human 2.0? How do we become humanity plus here? Let me get at this another way. I'm reading a book about Western civilization's most influential artists and artworks. Chief among them is Michelangelo's David. This is regarded by many to be the the perfect work of art, the perfect sculpture, only it isn't. So here we have David's ankles. David stands on a very slight tilt, actually, writes Russ Ramsey, adding torque to the 6,000 pounds of pressure putting weight on David's ankles. And the fault lines beneath Florence that aggravate these fault lines, construction equipment around is shaking the ground, the footsteps of millions of, of tourists is causing imperceptible seismic activity around the statue of the, the statue's base. And so all of this for hundreds of years and weather and lightning and there are growing cracks in David's ankles. And experts agree that one day David is going to fall. He will collapse under the weight of his own flaws. So what I want to say is that perfection, this side of heaven, is an illusion. We simply cannot engineer it. Suffering and death is an inescapable part of the world we live in. Don't we know that? Isn't that true to our experience? There are mitigating science, technology, medicine. These things can mitigate in ways that are helpful. But ultimately, what do we need? We need heaven on earth. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Remember Noah's flood? It's gone. It's receded completely. No more waters of judgment and chaos and death. And then John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is among his people and he will be with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the goal. That's what we hope for. To dwell with God once again for heaven and earth to be fully united. And in the meantime, you are the place where heaven and earth meet. Through faith in Christ and your own baptism into his death and resurrection, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit of God, made his temple. You are anointed ones, full of the Spirit. Now, of course, you don't always feel like it. I certainly don't. I mean, one of the reasons... I took this angle on the sermon this week. I've preached on this text several times this year and gone the route of being a beloved son. You know, we could go that way. But I was feeling in my own life, Jenny and I parenting, we've just been feeling like, oh my gosh, we need God's grace and renewal. Like we need his renewal. But don't we know we, oh, we need it? And so in a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna anoint you. We're gonna offer you an anointing to remind you of who you actually are, no matter how you might feel. We're going to pray for you to receive this truth and then to walk in it. What does it mean to walk in it? Well, there's a list for that. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And then Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so as you're anointed, what I'm going to ask you to do is make a New Year's resolution. To be the best version of yourself, to be humanity plus, so to speak. This year, resolve to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, it's easier said than done. I know practically this looks like praying for and practicing a basic orientation and mindset. Because we hear these things and we think, well, I'm not always patient, I'm not always kind. Of course you're not. But the invitation is to put on the mindset, to put on an orientation. I want to live this way, I want to keep in step with the Spirit. And so I'm going to say no to just kind of being lazily dragged along by my flesh and these other things that I'm, no, 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 I desire, Lord, for you to work and keep me in step with your spirit. Well, how does this look? It means making little decisions throughout the day to choose kindness over vengeance, to choose to hold your tongue rather than to gossip or to insult or to plant seeds, to temper your words with gentleness and kindness. It means to forgive those who have hurt you. It means to turn envy into genuine celebration of others' fun trips or beautiful things or great gifts. It means to celebrate your brothers and sisters. It means to encourage and build one another up when you could tear them down. It means to share rather than take. It means to give rather than keep your resources for yourself. It's all these little decisions all along the way, and it's, Lord, help me keep in step with your Spirit. And then when you don't, is to remember that loving and forgiving yourself is a part of keeping in step with the Spirit. That, yes, Lord, I failed once again, and I ask for your pardon, and I receive it afresh. Because this is who you are. You are anointed ones. You are new creations. You are creatures made kings by the Holy Spirit of God. And so Matt's going to come up and play a little music, and we're going to pray Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 over you, Cindy and I. I'll be here, Cindy will be here, and you can just come forward as you're ready, um, and we're going to pray this for you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you may have power to grasp how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, and that you would walk in your anointing as anointed ones. Father, we pray that in this time you would fill us. I am, many of us are so desperately aware of the need for your spirit to refresh us. We're tired and we need renewal. We're, we're selfish and we need your grace to change us. We're, we're, th- we're needy. We're hungry. And we know that it is only by your Spirit, ultimately, that our hearts will be changed, that we will be made new. And so let this be a little moment along the way as we make a resolution to keep in step with your Spirit. Would you would you work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.